Welcome to the Arate Podcast. My name is Richard Triggs, and today's guest is Matthew Markowitz, CEO of Complexia. It's wonderful to have you along again today, and I'm looking forward to bringing to you this interview with Matt Markowitz. I've known Matt for probably three years now. I first met him as he was one of the mentors in the KPI program, or Key Person of Influence program, that I attended in 2014. And Matt was the mentor for the pitch element, and uh, I was very interested to see Matt in action. So recently I had the opportunity to join Matt on a number of meetings he held with CEOs of major corporates in relation to artificial intelligence solutions that he offers through Complexia. And I was so overwhelmed by the excitement of these CEOs in what Matt had to offer that I felt he'd be a great podcast guest. So I'm sure you'll enjoy this conversation with Matt today. But before we get to that, let me just briefly introduce myself to you. My name is Richard Triggs and I'm the managing partner of Arate Executive, and we recruit CEOs, senior leaders, and non-executive directors for our clients throughout Australia. We also provide a range of career coaching and advocacy solutions. So if you're a senior executive and you're looking for a new role, or alternatively, you're looking to recruit into your business, either at executive or non-executive director level, I'd welcome the opportunity to have a chat to you. Let me now introduce to you, Matthew Markowitz. Matthew has more than 20 years of experience in starting and running high growth tech companies, especially in the area of predictive analytics and optimization. He's currently the CEO of Complexia, a provider of artificial intelligence software that helps organizations sell more products and services and reduce labor costs and headcount. Matthew is also the author of four books, including Life in Half a Second and Winning Credibility. He's also a visiting fellow at the University of Adelaide, a board director at Prophecy International, and a limited partner in Blackbird Ventures. Matthew lives with his wife and family in Adelaide, Australia. Sit back and enjoy this conversation with Matt Michaels. Thanks very much for joining us on the Arate podcast. Uh, I'm sitting here in Brisbane. Where are you today? In Adelaide, Richard, and uh, thank you for having me on your podcast. Uh-huh. Fantastic. And uh, what's happening in Adelaide? Oh, beautiful weather, 32 degrees, um, you know, grapes are growing in the vineyard. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, very steamy here in Brisbane. Uh, let me tell you, it's been a very humid few weeks. So um, thanks for uh, joining us on the podcast the idea of this podcast is really for me to talk to CEOs, managing directors and uh, chairs about their careers and some of their uh, key milestones, lessons learned along the way as an opportunity for people who are aspiring to those sort of roles to listen to those who have walked the path before them. So perhaps yep. just to begin the conversation, just have a chat to us about you know what's currently happening for you from a professional point of view. What's your current range of responsibilities? Sure. So my primary responsibility is I run a company. I'm the managing director of a business called Complexica. It's a software company in the analytics space, um, about 25 people. And uh, it's about uh, 
two, two and a half years old. So I've been in that space for a while and that's my predominant responsibility. Okay, so for those people who are listening who perhaps don't have much of an IT bent, uh, what exactly do you mean by working within the analytics space? So it's making sense of data in large organizations to um, extract from that data insights or answers that the business can use to make decisions. So every business wants to price its products properly. They want to be providing uh, their customers with the right message, the right offer, the right combination of services or products. And typically the answer to those questions on what should we be offering and so forth comes from analyzing data. And that's the analytics space, um, software that can analyze large data sets and extract insights and actionable really uh, value from it. Okay, and so what would be an example of uh, a typical client of Complexica? So uh, a business that has uh, a rich um, set of either products and or customers, so typically banks, utilities, uh, telcos, retailers, wholesalers, companies that have large uh, sets of customers and typically a large set of offers that they could be given those customers. And those two things together create complexity. When you have a lot of customers on your books that are different, they, uh, they segment in different ways, they have different uh, needs, drivers, backgrounds, and so forth. And you have a lot of possible offers that you could be providing those uh, customers. It creates complexity in terms of how you should be communicating, what you should be offering, when and at what price. Okay, so in a, uh, in a nutshell, you're basically assisting them in working out how to maximize the success of their various uh, products and services from a, a revenue point of view or from an economy of scale perspective. Exactly. The three drivers that we or metrics that we impact in client companies is revenue, margin, and engagement with customers. Right. Those are the three. Okay, great. Well, we might uh, come back to that uh, because uh, this uh, idea of big data is very uh, 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 in the media at the moment, and certainly a lot of yeah. my clients are. Uh, overwhelmed with the amount of data that they have but have no real way to turn that into anything useful so I'm keen to understand more about that but before we get to there so perhaps just um, have uh, I'm keen to talk through what led you in your career to where you are today so um, what once you go back to uh, your, your early life where you were born and mum and dad and family and and uh, how you grew up okay uh, so to I take a long story and make it short. I'm an only child that was born in communistic Poland and I escaped with my parents when I was about six to uh, New Zealand and my uh, where I spent the next six years of my life and then migrated to the States where I grew up. But what's significant is that both of my parents are mathematicians and my father moved into computer science when I was very, very young and particularly into a branch of computer science called artificial intelligence. Uh, really trying to use sophisticated technologies to make sense of data, interpret it, um, develop decision support systems and the like. So I kind of had an upbringing, Richard, in the university and academia. I'd go there after school waiting for my father to finish. I spent time around 
professors talking about things like neural networks and the Turing test and simulation systems and expert systems and so on. And I never really thought anything about it other than probably it was strange <laughs> in hindsight until I reached uh, my early 20s, graduated from the university, entered the business world, particularly the big business world, and made a connection between the things that my father had been working on and problems and opportunities that big businesses were experiencing. So that led me to create the first company in really commercializing my father's research in artificial intelligence uh, and applying that technology to large data sets to help big business make better decisions. Okay, well, but, just uh, a, a couple of questions that come out of that. Uh, firstly, yeah. uh, uh, Poland to New Zealand, an uh, interesting choice for final destination. What was it uh, that originally took them there? Yeah, very good question. Um, it is as simple as they looked for the furthest uh, destination possible from communism. Right. And uh, and and that was and then New Zealand was it. Okay. <laughs> in 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 uh, geography and and ideology as well, I suppose. Uh, uh, absolutely. And my parents joke that uh, after spending after arriving in New Zealand, they discovered that it was a little bit too far, and, right. uh, and they migrated to the. To the United States, but it was literally to escape. Yeah, sure. And uh, and so the time that your father was starting to get into artificial intelligence, um, I imagine it must have really been at the absolute forefront uh, uh, at, at that time. What, what sort of years are we talking about? Uh, this would, would have been early 80s. Okay. So, uh, yeah, look, quite a while ago. Okay. And so um, you were saying that uh, you uh, grew up in this academic environment with uh, mum and dad and, and uh, spent a lot of time around the university faculty. Interestingly, I did as well. My father was a university professor and uh, I spent many a school holiday running around the labs and uh, hanging out with his uh, weird uh, academic mates. And so um, uh, what did you study at university? Finance. Right. So I, uh, I entered the university not really, I knew I wanted to do something in business, but business is broken into a variety of disciplines, accounting and management and human resources and strategy and economics and so on. And I wasn't, I never really enjoyed maths, you know, especially my father was a mathematician and then computer scientist. So it was, it was very much uh, prevalent in, uh, in my household maths. And I never really had a liking for it until I took my first finance class and it became very real. It became applied maths. It became, you know, valuing companies and uh, discounting cash flows and net present value. So fell in love with the subject and ended up uh, majoring in it. And do you think that uh, back then you had in your mind a potential opportunity to work with your father and bring some commercial element to what he was doing within his uh, area of specialization or did that just kind of happen by chance? Yeah, I never considered it. It never even crossed my mind in the remotest way. So I had really no interest in technology, no interest in artificial intelligence. I, I enjoyed business subjects, finance, uh, all of that. But when I graduated from the university, um, my, my first uh, real job was a management consultant at Ernst & Young. And that was okay. where I got exposure to, to big companies, big problems, and made the connection between those companies and artificial intelligence for the first time. 
and hence um, you know, began talking to my father on what we could do to commercialize his research. But up to that point, it had never crossed my mind. And what about from his point of view? Had he had a, a commercial orientation no, towards? No, never. Yeah, yeah, ab- absolutely never. So he, uh, he always says that if it wasn't for me, he would have continued his career in academia. He's published, I don't know, 400 research papers, 20, 30 or even more books on the subject. So a very academic-oriented uh, person. And uh, again, business had never crossed his mind. Right. And uh, I suppose for many people listening, uh, they must be wondering what it's like to actually work in a business with your father. Uh, uh, some people work with their spouse. And, you know, certainly from my own experience, that's not for the faint-hearted. What's the dynamic, <laughs> what's the dynamic like working with dad? I, I, I know lots of uh, family businesses, and even we have customers today um, like PFD Foods that are big family businesses. So um, I, I know different companies have different experiences, but for me it's been absolutely a marvelous one because I'm very close to my parents. Having escaped communism, I grew up without really any extended family other than mm-hmm. parents, being an only child, no brothers and sisters. So I was always very close to uh, to my parents and my father in particular. So having the opportunity to extend that relationship and make it a working relationship where we could do something together and something new for both of us. It was new for him because he had never done anything in business. And it was new for me because I had never done anything with mm. technology, with artificial intelligence. So, if, and, and obviously there was huge trust between us, which I think mm. is important in any business relationship. And that when we began our first company, it was almost 20 years ago and it's been absolutely fantastic so it's it's been a highlight of my life and so how long were you at ey for before you uh decided to embark in this uh direction oh very very sure less than half a year oh right okay uh, yeah i I had uh, a business uh in the university that i was running which was unrelated to any of these subjects which was a fitness business which is another uh, personal passion of my life and so i had uh, discovered what it's like to be an entrepreneur and to kind of you know hold the reins of your destiny in your hands and have the freedom and control around your own actions and direction in life and once you kind of experience that it's very very difficult to go into a business and uh, and experience corporate life and uh, and find it fulfilling when you've really enjoyed entrepreneurship over many years so i think it was a combination of having been an entrepreneur and then seeing this huge opportunity in the marketplace for the application of AI that led me to quickly realize, hey, um, EY is not for me. Mm-hmm. And so tell us about that first uh, business that you were involved with. Uh, what was the uh, the range of services that you were offering then? Sure, so the first company I ever created, I, was, I had just turned 18. Uh, it, the name of the business was Fitness Forever, and it was a personal training business. And, and the motivation behind it was extremely simple. When I uh, started college, I had to pay my way and all the only kind of jobs that were available to me at that time were minimum wage, you know, flipping hamburgers style jobs, very unfulfilling from a, you know, um, you know, mental point of view, standing mm-hmm. behind a hot stove for eight hours, flipping a hamburger for $4 an hour. So I wanted to um, earn more 
and at the same time earn more while doing something I really enjoyed doing, sure. something that uh, was of interest. So the only thing that I knew at that time and was extremely passionate about was fitness, training, dieting, um, going from overweight to, to you know to muscular to, to um, through nutritional programs and various types of aerobics and weight training and so forth. So I thought about is there a way where I could create an opportunity for myself and and then doing some research I found that I could get certified as a trainer after going through a certain um, study process and accreditation process and then I actually set up a business that was a personal training business to train others mm-hmm. and, and I did that all through college and loved it. And so you did that for two or three years and, and then what about the uh, your first business uh, with your father? So the name of that company was New Tech, and it raised a significant amount of venture capital. It was almost 20 million. The company grew to almost 200 employees, half of which were PhDs. And it was the premise was very, very simple: apply artificial intelligence technology to very large data sets. And we worked uh, exclusively, really, with banks, telcos, and the government, uh, homeland security, defense, and so on, to analyze those data sets to enable better decision making. Mm -hmm. So that would be decision making about how to upsell customers, cross sell, how to retain them. Um, It was building churn models, um, deflection models, uh, or risk models for homeland security around um, various shipments or containers or movements at ports that might be suspicious that need to be inspected. And what all of those projects had in common was large data before it was even called the big data mm-hmm. and trying to make sense of it so you could make a decision. Mm-hmm. And uh, how long uh, did you have that business for? It was, uh, I think, just under five years and it was sold. Right. And so was the intent when you started that business to uh, to, to build something for sale or uh, was no. there a, No. Yeah. No, it was really... Um, the, the beginning of it, since neither of us had done anything like that before, he had never had a business and I had never done anything in technology. There wasn't really a grand plan. If, if anything, we wanted to build a business and float it mm-hmm. and continue, you know, build something that kind of um, is greater than you, um, has a life of its own and so forth. Those, that was the kind of thinking. It wasn't, hey, let's start a business, grow it and sell it. Um, that that wasn't the mentality at the time, and it was undiscovered countries for both of us, him for business, me for technology, and we kind of had to figure it out as we went along. And there were more immediate challenges rather than thinking about, you know, how can we grow this and sell it. That kind of happened by itself. Mm-hmm. And but it seems as though in five years to grow to two hundred employees and twenty million dollars is a uh, some very rapid growth. Do you think that was because? you had uh, some particular technology that was right place, right time? Was there particular things that you did to ensure that the business was able to maintain that kind of growth momentum? Uh, um, Good questions. You know, in the United States, Fast growth is going from zero to a hundred million in revenue in like three or four years. So it's substantially faster than even the stuff we did. Mm-hmm. And if you look at some of the great successes in tech, whether it's uh, Microsoft or Apple or Facebook or other, they, they all have that profile of going from zero to a hundred million in revenue in a very very short period of time. So I think the 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 main reason why we grew was that we were comparing ourselves to these phenomenal successes 
that are almost, you know, unicorns are almost impossible to replicate and match their growth. But because you're comparing yourself to them, you might go from 2 million to 4 to 8 uh, to 16 and actually think you're not growing fast at all Mm -hmm. because the comparison is this other company, it's already 100 million or 150. So I think the, the driver of growth is very much in the mindset and uh, frame of comparison that, that the founders have. Mm-hmm. Some people think that fast growth is you know, 20, 30% a year, and other people think that fast growth is 500% a year. And I think it very much depends on that mindset on how the business is gonna execute in the market and what kind of strategy it uses. So mm-hmm. we had good technology, there was a need, there was all of that, but we were operating in an environment where fast growth was really fast. And mm-hmm. if you weren't doubling revenues, you weren't every year, you weren't even in the game. So when you're looking at these companies that were achieving these uh, phenomenal uh, growth uh, outcomes, what were some of yep. the key elements of what they were doing that you tried to adopt uh, within your own business? Yeah, the, the first is scalability. Um, to grow, there are um, some offerings that are just innately scalable. You could double your revenue or, or even um, 10x revenue or user base and it just scales. You don't need the same corresponding amount of people. You don't need to be delivering uh, a very service intensive uh, or manual intensive, labor intensive type of uh, uh, offer that requires all these additional people. So when, when we look at companies that really scale, like look at Facebook, it, it, you know you need more servers, yes, you need more IT, et cetera, but you can go from 100,000 users to a million to 10 million to 100 million, and in the addition of all of these additional users, it's not like for every user you've got to add an employee or half an employee mm-hmm, sure. or something like that. So scalability was the predominant consideration if, if if for any reason you weren't scalable there was some kind of uh, constraint that for every 10% growth in revenue you needed some super specialist labor mm-hmm. that was difficult to get all of a sudden it would become a break on your growth um, mm-hmm. so, so when I look at those companies that's one of the main things so you were intentionally saying underpinning our strategy we must have a foundation uh, that everything needs uh, to be able to be maximized from a scalability perspective. C- correct. Correct. Oh, so it, it's, a, it's a yeah, it's a philosophy when you're a tech entrepreneur in the U.S. and particularly if you get venture capital funding and you have sophisticated investors that are behind you, sit on your board, mentor you, advise you, and so on. Scalability is key. Without mm. scalability, the value of an enterprise is greatly diminished. Its its growth potential is constrained and diminished. And ultimately, if you're not scalable, but your competitors are, you'll lose the, you'll lose the race, you'll mm. lose the game. So that, that kind of philosophy pervades entrepreneurship in the United States. And, and that was something that you and your father uh, identified and agreed on, you know, from the get-go that this is a, you know, an important driver for us. I mean, you're relatively, well, at that time, young, you're new into business, he's new into business. What did you yep. get around you in the way of support and, and mentorship, et cetera, to assist you in, in achieving the things that you did? Absolutely. So the way you describe it is very kind in the sense that we identified it and so on. Really, the way it happened is we stumbled on it or probably more 
appropriately turned it hammered into us by the people we had around us, specifically the investors that we had. So it wasn't something that all of a sudden we sat back in a, you know, some comfortable lounge chair, smoked a cigar, read a book and said, Hey, we need to become scalable because blah, blah, blah. It, sure. it was kind of the other way around. Let's, let's create a business. There's all of these things you don't know. All of a sudden you've raised capital because your technology is exciting. There's a need in the marketplace and with capital comes money, uh, sorry, comes expertise mm-hmm. and, uh, and the knowledge that immediately they said, hey, these are the basics and these are the things that we need to be um, doing to make sure that the business has the best chance of success. So that was kind of the discovery of this whole area of scalability and building something that can really grow. Mm-hmm. So you you lent on your investors for their professional business acumen. Uh, they were obviously wanting to protect their investment, but also they had a strong guiding hand in the uh the success of the business. Correct, correct. And then once once you have capital and you have some initial customers and you're kind of on your way and the media starts covering you, excitement begins to build around what you're doing, then we be, we began hiring experienced people. So, and that's you know probably the second point um, closely related to scalability, hire people that have done it before. That, mm-hmm. that is the mantra that, uh, that I live by. So whether it was uh, in the US business, whether it was the last company I had in Australia solve it, or the current one at Complexica, try to find people that are smarter than you, that are better than you, that have been on the journey, that know what you don't know, because then everything becomes easier. So in the US in particular, because there's so much we didn't know, um, boy, I, I, I can't remember, I was maybe 25, 26 at the time, but yet the average age of the management team member was like 48. Right. So, right. So, so, and that's critical. You can't go and, you know, it might be different today in Silicon Valley, but at the time you can't go and create a company and hire a bunch of early 20 year olds and, and expect them to have the business acumen experience um, having seen the highs and lows of various cycles, understand fundamental strategy and economics to guide an enterprise. So it's critical you kind of bring in that talent and they act as not only um, leaders in their functional areas in a business, but also mentors mm-hmm. because you learn. You, you, you're you really observing and learn as you're working with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. We uh, Obviously, we're a recruitment business and we use a recruitment methodology developed by an American uh, named Lou Adler performance-based hiring and, and the mantra is hire people who've done it before, they did it well and they're motivated to do it again. Mm, and, uh, yeah. So it's great to hear uh, some real world uh, evidence uh, that that's been successful for others. And so you had this business for about five years and then eventually what it, it just got on the radar of, of uh, a larger organisation that wanted to acquire you. Yeah. So. Similar to the outcome that I've had in uh, in the company that came after that, which was in Australia, which was called Solvit, it had a slightly longer journey, um, seven years from startup to sale, and it was sold to Schneider Electric. But in the same kind of way, you the bigger you get, the more radars you appear on, the more media coverage you have, the more customers, and the more employees, those employees... Uh, uh, you know, talk about what they do. So, so there's just much more awareness and visibility around who you are, what's your offer, what's your unique differentiation, what's your special source, what are you saying to the media, how are you positioning yourself, you become visible. Mm-hmm. And through that visibility, 
um, in, in, this is my own personal experience, it, we created partnerships, and in the end, those partners became acquirers. Mm -hmm. So Schneider Electric in Australia was a partner that we worked on joint deals together in the mining sector. And the first deal we did, I believe, was at Extrata, where we won a, a, a very large implementation where it was our software and Schneider Electric software together into the Extrata business in Australia. So here you've got this $30 billion huge partner working with you that provides brand, that provides um, uh, you know, uh, resources and all of this additional stuff. And they see how well you work together in the sense how complementary the technologies are and how well they fit together when they're being sold. And then it just becomes a conversation for them hey, instead of being partners, how would you feel if you became part of our business? Mm -hmm. And that's kind of how it starts. Mm. Okay, so before we get to that, uh, uh, you, um, New Tech, you sold that business, and was it not long after that that you moved to Australia? Yes, yeah, yeah. so then I moved to Australia. My uh, parents moved a year later, and then we created Solvit. Okay, and so uh, what was the fundamental difference uh, between Solvit and New Tech in terms of the technology and, and what you were taking to the market? Sure. So technology is always moving and advancing. So it is impossible to begin a business, develop a piece of technology, grow that business, sell it, and then years have passed and create another company and, and reuse that same technology or that same approach because things have just so fundamentally changed. Like, uh, and I'll give you an example between Newtech and Solvit Next, but even looking between Solvit and Complexica, you know, everything in the cloud, everything is SaaS-based, mm -hmm. the architecture is completely different, you're dealing with different data sets, the way they're handled, is everything is fundamentally different. So between um, Newtech and Solvit, I remember, I think, you know, the Newtech software was written in C++. It was uh, some client-server um, environment. It focused on data sets, banks and telcos, defense. But fundamentally, it applied some neat technology, neural networks and ant systems and base nets and so on. But very, by today's, you know, looking back 20 years now, almost very clunky in, mm -hmm. in, in the way it, it did things. There was a lot of um, disparity between the different code bases that we had and the types of deployments, et cetera. So when Solvit was created, everything was now, we said, let's standardize on Java. Let's make sure that it can be delivered through the web. Let's centralize the development. So there was this architectural technological difference um, that we had. And the, and the second big difference was that Solvit was a, uh, application provider for supply chain systems. So it used artificial intelligence to optimize very complex supply chains like BHP supply chain or Fortescue or uh, the grain companies or the wine companies where you have to schedule and plan and uh, uh, not only your machines but your people and trucks and logistical movements and so forth. And we said, let's, let's build a massive enterprise application that handles that complexity and would uh, integrate with ERP. So it was a it was a complete difference from going. You know, we were dealing with banks, telcos, and defense, dealing with large data sets. All of a sudden, going to miners and agricultural companies, putting in supply chain systems, underlying technology, artificial intelligence. You're dealing with big data, but a fundamentally different application of that technology in mm -hmm. a different structure. And so uh, with that business, you're going into these uh, extremely complex 
uh, supply chain environments. Were, was this completely new thinking for them? Were there other players in this space or were you having to go in and actually educate your clients on what you were hoping to achieve for them? I, I, it was a combination. I've always observed uh, throughout my last 20 years that there is a bell-shaped curve of client thinking. There are those companies that are very innovative, very progressive. They, uh, they have forward thinking. They challenge the current status quo and paradigm. They have people inside the business that don't have any sacred cows in terms of philosophy. And that thinking around how supply chain could be versus how it currently exists was there, and mm-hmm. they, but, but, but they couldn't act on it because the technology didn't exist until we arrived on the scene. And then on the other side of the bell curve, you had companies that didn't have those kind of people, didn't have that kind of thinking. Um, there was no impetus or imperative to do things better, and that very much was an educational process. And then, mm-hmm. wow, it can be done differently, great, but what would be the benefit of doing it differently? Who else is doing it differently? What benefits have they gotten? So there was that full distribution of businesses Mm -hmm. from those that wanted and knew to those that didn't understand and had to be completely educated from the ground up. Mm -hmm. And out of interest, uh, if anything, what did you notice was different about doing business in Australia versus doing business in the US? Everything. (laughs) (laughs) Some, some, you know, I, I think sales people or the sales profession is the third largest job category in the United States. It's almost like everyone is a salesperson of some sort. Mm -hmm. So generally in the United States, um, there's more competition for absolutely everything. More people are selling. There's more noise. It's more difficult to cut through the noise. You are, the environment is much more competitive. Mm-hmm. And, and think of it this way, you know, most bleeding edge technology um, comes out of Silicon Valley. Uh, not all of it, but, but, but a great deal. You look at the rise of Uber or Facebook or any, or any of these companies, and no one really wakes up in Silicon Valley and says, you know what, the first country that I want to conquer is Australia. Mm-hmm. I know, no, no, no. The first country, the first state is going to be California and then it's going to be the United States, which means there's this gap in time between the things that are happening in the United States and at the time before it gets to the rest of the world, whether it gets to Europe or Asia or Australia. And then once it does arrive here, there's been this time gap and their best people aren't here. Their best people are in their most competitive markets where they're the most competitive, the most focus. So what I'm trying to say is I found it a much easier place to do business than the United States because there is less competition, there is less noise, there is less people selling. It's easier to go to the marketplace with a clear message and engage with businesses. All of that is much harder in the United States and whatever you have that's new, there is 10 other companies tomorrow that have something similar. Mm. So it is, it, is a, it is a much more difficult market to, uh, to win in. And what did you notice uh, about yourself? You'd, you'd had a business, you'd run it to the point in five years you sold it, you're now uh, starting and running your second business. What were some of the changes on a personal level that you noticed within yourself as you matured and became more uh, commercial around uh, being a successful business owner? 
Yeah, great question. The reason we moved to Australia is, I mean, we fell in love with the country, but more than the country, we fell in love with the people, mm-hmm. their values, the way they look at life, um, how they live, how genuine they are, sincere, down to earth. It's a community and uh, and a country we wanted to be a part of. So that was the reason we moved. And the reason um, that we wanted to be part of that is because we wanted to start a family. Mm-hmm. So my wife and I had been married for eight or nine years by the time we moved to Australia. We hadn't had kids up to that point. And when we arrived in Australia, it was with really the specific intent to settle down, have kids, um, grow old here. That was the, the, the extent of the plan. Sure. So, what, so, the, so there was all of a sudden a fundamental difference between what I did in Australia and the U.S. because all of a sudden I had two young kids when the when the second business was created. So I, I think having, um, w- without boring you with all the details, but having a, a lot of mentors in the States that gave me the perspective of what's important in life once mm-hmm. you reach the age of 60, 65, and 70, all of them stressed to me without exception mistakes that they had made in their life in the, in the sense of being one-dimensional towards success, materialistic success. And I think, boy, if I had just had more time with my kids, if, if I could just have my time over again, I would have done this or I would have done that. So that kind of uh, reinforcing, reinforced message really resonated with me and was hammered into me during a time when I didn't have children. So that when I came to Australia, the, the to answer your question specifically, what was different and how I had matured, I wanted to build a business, but I wouldn't sacrifice time with family or time with kids mm-hmm. in the achievement of building that business, mm-hmm. which was something that was different to, to the previous one because there were no kids. And so do you think that that meant that you had to become more efficient uh, or did it change the way that you uh, applied yourself within the business to give you the space to uh, do the things in terms of your family life? Yeah, it's a combination. You de- There's less time mm-hmm. because you have to have time for your kids. You have to have time for your family. You have to have time for yourself. So if you take away all of that time plus the time you're going to spend sleeping and whatnot, there's just less time available. So if there's less time available, two things are going to happen. One, you have to use that time more efficiently. You don't have time for meetings that are a waste of time or that have nothing to do with your current business or are not aligned to your goals and strategy. There's just no time for that. And the second thing is because there's less time, it forces you to try to replicate yourself and your business earlier and quicker. You have to leverage yourself because mm-hmm. you, there's less time, you can't do it all and so on. And probably actually there's a third thing as well. You're not able to do as much as quickly. Mm-hmm. So um, the development of Solvit in Australia took longer than the development of the previous business in the United States because there was two reasons. There was less time, but also it was a business that we funded ourselves as founders rather than having any outside funding. So those two things made it a slower journey than the previous one. Mm -hmm. And so uh, you said that you had that business for uh, seven years and then uh, sold that business to Schneider. Yes. Right. They were working with you. uh, You developed a a good rapport and, uh, and it was just an easeful transaction. Correct. I mean, there's probably uh, 
no such thing as an easy transaction. There's always a negotiation sure. and the whole you know full-blown process, but it's easier to do a transaction if you do it with someone that knows you, knows mm-hmm. your business, knows your product, knows your customers, has worked with you, you're doing joint projects, you're on the same uh, steering committee meetings on these projects. So that's an easier deal to do than someone meeting you who doesn't know you from a bar of soap. And mm-hmm. they've got to discover everything. Who are you? Can I trust you? What's your technology all about? Who are your customers and so forth? So I found it easier to do a transaction um, with a partner because all of that background knowledge and information and rapport and trust is just there. Mm-hmm. And so post selling Solvent, how was it? How long was it before you then uh, decided to start Complexica? It was about two years. Right. And what did you do during that time? I wrote a book, uh, spent more you know, time with family, so I didn't travel. Uh, you know, it took me uh, half a year to write the book from beginning to end. I was at home the whole time. Right. I wrote while my kids were at, uh, at school, uh, traveled with family. And then after the book was published, I, 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 I love speaking at events. So I did a lot of that, right. speaking about subjects that are close to my heart, entrepreneurship, small business success, innovation, technology, um, how to achieve success if you've got a dream and so forth. So, so really the two years were used up doing that, just personal fulfillment kind of stuff. I love writing and I love educating people and passing on things that I've learned and lessons that, uh, that I've experienced. And that's really how the time was spent. And do you think uh, you had always had in the back of your mind that, you know, I'm going to have this hiatus from being a business owner for a couple of years and then get back into it again? No, no, and and it's funny because after Solvit was sold, I told people I, I'm not going to do it again. Right. Um, it's it's uh, I'm going to write, I'm going to speak, I'm going to do all of these things, mm-hmm. which I which I ended up doing. But then I I kind of realized I really missed. Right. No, it's not so much running the business. You know what I really missed is innovating with the big companies. That's mm-hmm. the thing that I really love. It's not that I miss having an office with employees in it and I come in there and hold hands with them and. Sure. and tell them stories. I, you know, that has nothing to do with it. I miss being with CEOs and board members and of extreme multi-billion dollar companies where we're trying to solve problems that will give them a competitive advantage, trying mm-hmm. to deliver technology that no one's done before, trying to enable something that would just fundamentally shift them in the marketplace. I found that so exciting. Like even you know, you look at the miners, whether it was the BHPs or others, you're dealing with core business issues, the Pilbara supply chain in iron ore or, or uh, the coal supply chains in Queensland, etc. It's core business, it's strategic, you're having discussions at the highest level. And I realized after a couple of years that I really missed that. And that was the thing that kind of led to, and, and, and my father missed it as well. Let's, mm-hmm. let's create another company together. That, mm-hmm. that was the thing that uh, drove us. And so when you sat down with him and said, let's go again two, two and a half years ago, what, what was the, the vision for what you were going to achieve with this new business, Complexica? Yeah, good question. There was no vision at the very beginning. We knew that we wanted to do something in artificial intelligence and we knew uh, that it could, uh, we didn't want to do supply chain, that the, the excitement was kind of uh, not there anymore. I think we'd exhausted that to the nth degree. So how can we leverage technology that we know in some new area? That was the, so we, there was no vision beyond that. And then what we did is we went and spent time 
with big businesses that we had close relationships with. Either they were customers or they we had friends there or um, they had been partner companies, whatever the case might be, trying to see what is current problems or challenges or obstacles that big companies are dealing with and could we potentially commercialize some technology that's based on artificial intelligence to address this problem. So that was the beginning of it. Mm -hmm. And so you're out there, you're talking to organizations to understand you know, the challenges they're trying to uh, cope with and, and, uh, and get competitive advantage from. So if you had to summarize the typical challenge of the large clients that you're working with now, um, perhaps through a couple of examples, um, you know, give, us a, give us a sense of what it's all about. Yeah, so we met probably, I don't know, I can't remember how many companies, maybe 70 companies, and we probably had a, something like 200 meetings, and there were four themes that uh, came out of all of these meetings. And, and, and I find this part exciting because it's kind of like primary market research. You go, sure. you're like Sherlock Holmes, and you're meeting with companies trying to discover what's what, you're an investigator. And the four themes that in terms of objectives or challenges or the things that businesses were trying to achieve was one, they were looking for ways to generate growth. How do we maintain growth? How do we accelerate growth? How do we keep growth at previous um, rates? And by growth, that might mean member acquisition, customer acquisition, revenue, and so on. Mm -hmm. The second theme was one around margins. Uh, I, I found through just about every conversation, margins are under pressure. Just about across everywhere, absolutely. So this constant conversation on margin kept coming up, protect the margin, stabilize the margin, um, potentially increase the margin, or bundle some products together. We have a low margin with a higher margin that gets the margin up. So this, a second thematic was margin. The, the third was how do we engage with our customers um, at, at, at better or at a deeper level? How do we build stronger relationships with customers? How do we move from being some transactional provider of a product or service to being uh, a trusted advisor or to being uh, a business that customers rely on for some type of information? Or or how do we delight our customers? So the, the, the third thematic was really focused on the customer. And it had a lot to do with the first two points, revenue and margin, because if you have a stronger engagement with customers, that might lead to increased loyalty. Um, it might uh, lead to less deflection, which will directly impact revenue and margin metrics as well. So, mm -hmm. so the third one was around the customer. And the last one was costs, labor costs, other types of costs, headcount. Um, how, how do and again that comes back to margin. How do we um, minimize them, reduce them, stabilize them, so that we don't put any more pressure on our margin? Those were the, the themes that, out of every meeting we had, they emerged. So you're hearing uh, this. I, it, it fascinates me to think. Well, how do you go away then and think? What can we do in relation to artificial intelligence? Um, uh, the application of that to big data to find meaningful and simple solutions to what are, you know, from the sound of it, are extremely uh, challenging and complex uh, questions. What would be an example or a couple of examples of outcomes you've achieved for some of your early clients that represent what you're doing for these businesses? Yeah, so the thematic or the themes, um, the, these four themes were broad and high level. And then when we peeled the onion back, you know, one layer, 
and kind of investigated how could we achieve better in the business, how could we accelerate growth, or how could we stabilize the margin, et cetera. The, the answer, and this might sound generic, but, it, but it's not, it, the answer was by making a decision that's different to the current decision the business is making. Because if you want a different outcome, you've got to do something differently. And the reason that the business isn't doing anything differently is because there isn't enough data or evidence or insights or proof that, mm-hmm. that shows that a different decision will yield a different result. Mm-hmm. So now you are getting to the heart of kind, kind of the issue. Um, boy, if we could make a different decision, if we could pri- and a decision might be specifically to answer your question, if we priced our products in a different way, for mm-hmm. different customer segments, we would get a different result. Clearly that result might be worse or it might be better. So if we move from some static, generic pricing to individualized, personalized, dynamic prices, and if we did that correctly, Correctly, we would get a better result on revenue and margin. Mm-hmm. But, but and, so it directly ties to the themes, but they were unable to accomplish that because that requires sophisticated technology. Imagine having you know two million customers, having a, you know ten thousand SKUs or even a thousand SKUs or a hundred of different things that you're selling. There's there's uh, some uh, pricing model that you've currently got, and all of a sudden you want to move to a dynamic pricing model for all of those customers, for all of the products and services that you have, and the offer might be different at different times to different segments in different bundle combinations. You are now entering an era, uh, an arena of of complexity, mm-hmm. and it's an arena that that, that that all of a sudden they said, oh, we, we don't have the technology to address that. We don't have the skill set, the people, the tools, and so on. So we kind of took those main themes and drilled down to what decisions could the business make that are different from the current decisions that could yield a better result, and what is the, the gating item that's preventing them of making those decisions? And that's where the, all of a sudden the technology, the rubber hit the road. That's where the application of the technology got real discussion. Mm-hmm. And I imagine that, I mean, at the end of the day, any kind of business would be looking at ways to maintain and accelerate growth, uh, improve margins, better engage with their customers and reduce costs. But um, you know, when is it that a company gets to a point where they see an opportunity like this and they know that they want to engage your services uh, to get clarity and, uh, and create some forward thinking? So there's probably five or six areas that continuously recur around um, improving margins or revenue and, and so on. So one is the area of pricing. It's, it's, you've got price elasticity, cross elasticity, cannibalization. Um, that whole area is hugely complex. It requires a variety of different technologies. And it's one where we see lots of opportunities and we have lots of engagements in. How do we move from static pricing to personalized dynamic pricing? Mm-hmm. Another area is around promotions. If we're running a thousand retail outlets and you have 20,000 SKUs or 30 or 40,000, what product should be on promotion when and what combination and what time period at what price to get the best financial result for those retail outlets. So you've got promotions as, a, as another area. Then as another area, you've got customer segmentation and let's call it now micro segmentation. How do we create these very, segment our customer database into these very small uh, micro segments so that we can give very personalized offers and messages. Now, I think this era of dear valued customer emails and generic offers is, is either dead or dying at a rapid rate. 
the era that we're now in is in personalized messages, mm-hmm. personalized offers. That's difficult to do uh, unless you can really segment a huge customer database into very small pieces to understand that these people, businesses are similar to one another. They're likely to respond to these types of offers and these types of, of pricing. So, so another um, area is customer segmentation and micro segmentation. And that feeds to areas like upselling and cross selling and brand substitution and trying to maximize margin through having some personalized bundle that you offer to each person. So all of these areas that I'm talking about really deal with complexity, large customer uh, data sets and large uh, products kind of uh, portfolios. And Mm -hmm. it's the matching of all of those that can create revenue and margin value. And so you're two, two and a half years into this business now. So what are what are the critical things that you're focusing on and, and trying to achieve right at the moment? So we've built the products. Um, we, if you go to our website, complexica.com, there are some video testimonials in there. The product is really around automating complex data analysis using internal and external data to provide automated answers, automated insights, actionable insights that a business can use to make better decisions. So it's been quite a journey to build something, get it installed into big companies, have them endorse it, have them say, this is great. And now we're at the point where we are scaling the company and really leveraging the successes that we've had in certain industry sectors and replicating them to expand the customer base and enrich the product offering that we have. And I see that really the next two years is going to be like that. Mm -hmm. So the audience of this podcast who are predominantly incumbent and aspiring C-suite executives uh, if you were to uh, present a message to them in terms of how potentially you can assist or how you'd like to you engage with them, what would you say? The, the easiest way to describe our value proposition is technology that can help a company sell more at a higher margin while delighting their customers and building stronger engagement. The way it does that is through very sophisticated artificial intelligence technology that enables better decisions, decisions that yield better financial outcomes. So in, in our experience, you know, most companies want to sell more at a higher margin, but there's lots of challenges in doing that. But that is the main message that I would pass on. Mm-hmm. Well, certainly, uh, I've uh, seen you present uh, Complexica to a number of uh, CEOs of some very large organisations, and from my own experience, they seem uh, positively uh, thrilled and uh, uh, excited about the, the prospects of what they may be able to achieve in their business. So certainly, people who are listening to this podcast, I will uh, put some uh, links to Matt and his business in the show notes uh, to enable you to reach out if you want to have a conversation with Matt. Um, and so when we look to the future now, I mean, your first business, five years, second business, seven years, you're now two and a half years into this business. What's, uh, what's the end plan? What, what are you hoping to achieve and by when? Yeah, we certainly don't want to grow and sell as we did before. We want to grow and turn Complexica into a public company that becomes kind of a a staple of the Australian economy, something that represents intellectual capital, that represents science, that represents really science for business, Uh, a, a big company that can employ 
the hundreds of uh, PhDs, does research in uh, leading edge technologies, files, patents, and is really viewed by the community, and by the community I mean the country, as a business that allows, enables smarts and, mm-hmm. uh, and cleverness within big business to, to, to achieve uh, b- better outcomes, better mm-hmm. business outcomes. And I think, you know, and, and just reflecting on my own words here, uh, it was around the time we decided to create Complexica that we were having lunch in our favorite restaurant in Adelaide, and the owner of that restaurant, George, was uh, teaching his son how to make a coffee, right. and uh, and I was I was really touched by the whole experience. And then I t- talked to George, and the, the restaurant is George's on Weymouth. And I talked to George afterwards, and I said, "Look, that's really beautiful. You know that whole process of how you taught him how to make the machine and uh, make the coffee from the machine and serve it and so on." And he said that his father had taught him the same thing at the same age. Right. And my my and my sons are the same age as uh, as George's son. So. I really thought at that moment I would love to have a business at scale mm. where I could teach my kids how to make coffee, and that's a metaphor for how to be on to, how to be innovative, how to create value for customers, how to how to um, win business and uh, and uh, grow a company in the marketplace. And that, and I really thought in that moment that the only way to do that is to build something at scale, not grow it and sell it, but really make something that is much bigger than what we've done before. And it was a big motivator early on. Well, I think that's a a great note to leave this conversation on. And I really appreciate your time, Matt. And certainly uh, uh, if anybody would like me to facilitate an introduction to Matt, I'm happy to do so. And uh, I look forward to uh, catching up with you soon. But in the meantime, have a fantastic afternoon. Brilliant. Thank you, Richard. Okay. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Matt. Uh, He's a great guy and somebody that I've really come to respect as a business professional and also as a friend. And I'd certainly welcome the opportunity to introduce you to Matt if you have an interest in having a conversation with him about Complexia and what they may be able to do for your business. In the meantime, Thanks for joining me. I look forward to having you along for further Arate podcasts in the future and have a fantastic day.